What does someone living with lung cancer look like? Do you envision somebody who is gasping for breath or someone who is frail? Do you assume they must have smoked? Hi, I'm Diane Mulligan. And I'm Jordan Sherman. The reality is that anyone with lungs can get lung cancer. Many people living with lung cancer are never smokers. So today on Lung Cancer Foundation of America's Hope With Answers podcast, we'll talk with one of the nation's leading oncologists and a young, vibrant woman living with lung cancer on a podcast we call, You Don't Look Like You Have Lung Cancer. I think we all have to work hard to change the stigma of what a lung cancer patient looks like. Looking okay as a lung cancer patient and not the stereotypical one, people tend to kind of say like, you look good now, you're fine, you know. But when it's someone that I'm just meeting, I try and take the opportunity to kind of educate them and say like, yeah, this is what lung cancer looks like now. Like people like me are surviving, but it's still the leading cause of cancer death around the world. Lung cancer is a tough topic. It's a disease that affects patients, families, friends, co-workers. But first, it's a disease that affects people. The Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast brings you stories about people living, truly living with lung cancer. The researchers dedicated to finding new breakthrough treatments and others who are working to bring hope into the lung cancer experience. What does living with lung cancer look like? The answer's definitely changed over the past decade. Our first guest is Dr. David Carbone, a professor of medicine in the Division of Medical Oncology at The Ohio State University. Dr. Carbone is also a member of Lung Cancer Foundation of America's Scientific Advisory Board. Hi, Dr. Carbone. A little bit later on in the podcast, LCFA Speakers Bureau member Aurora Lucas is going to be joining us to talk a little bit more about her lung cancer journey and specifically how difficult it was to be diagnosed with lung cancer. For her, she's a young woman, she doesn't smoke, and she just doesn't fit that stereotypical mold of a cancer patient. And that can make it uh, really difficult for medical professionals to say, hey, we may be dealing with a lung cancer diagnosis here. How would you, or what advice would you offer to lung cancer patients when things are just not feeling right so they can advocate for themselves? I think we all have to work hard to to change the stigma of what a lung cancer patient looks like. Um, And it's especially important uh, when they're initially Uh, their initial diagnosis is delayed because of this misperception that you have to be 65 years old and a heavy smoker to get lung cancer. Uh, It's really true that if you have lungs, you can get lung cancer. And I've seen many cases where patients have a delayed diagnosis. They have the cancer uh, progresses while they're being treated for pneumonias or other things before the doctor thinks that this might be lung cancer. So it is a critical thing to communicate to primary care uh, doctors that they should consider even young and healthy never smokers uh, might have lung cancer underlying their symptoms. Absolutely, Dr. Carbone. And I think too that, you know, 
We know lung cancer therapy has really come a long way in a very short amount of time, and we're thrilled about that. But people may not look like they have lung cancer because of so many of these advances. You know, it used to be that lung like that cancer treatment automatically came with hair loss and nausea, all kinds of different things. Um, but that's not necessarily true anymore. So how do you help prepare your patients for this new reality of how they're going to explain this to family, friends, coworkers, everyone in their life? Right. Today's cancer patient can be undergoing active treatment, <clears throat> have metastatic disease, and yet still be in the workplace and still go to PTA meetings and still uh, go to soccer games with their kids. They um, they may look completely normal, but they may have an incurable uh, lung cancer, <clears throat> and they may have subtle symptoms that are very different from what most people expect. You know, in the old days, when you got a diagnosis of metastatic lung cancer, basically you would quit your job, <clears throat> and you would lose all your hair, and you'd be miserable, and um, usually you would die within a few months. But now the treatments have a, a low-grade toxicities much more often. And even though the person may look okay, they may ha have significant toxicities that just aren't apparent by looking at them. And I, I hope that the people around them and their employers will understand that they have, they, they may look normal, but they, they still have the burden of knowing that they have uh, lung cancer psychologically and that may not be curable with current treatments, but also that they may have chronic toxicities such as fatigue. They may have a low-grade diarrhea, which means they can't be far from a, a bathroom uh, and other things that, that may impact their ability to be 100% at work and maybe just 90%. It really is. And, you know, it, it, you may look well, too. And I know that's the whole premise of this podcast is, you know, um, the lung cancer patient may look OK to colleagues and friends, um, but they're not. And, you know, the reality is uh, many of the things that you just pointed out, Dr. Carbone. So do you, you know, diving into that a little bit deeper, um, is there any like uh, like a, a three step tips that you offer to your um, patients, such as, you know, develop a routine, or maybe it is researching where some of the side effects are uh, for the therapies that they're on, so they can adapt at their life. Um, and eventually, you know, try to keep things as normal as possible, but also acknowledge that, you know, you're living with a terminal illness. Yeah, so the, the psychological burden of this and potentially financial burden really can't be underestimated as well. I think the best reference for patients who are on, on these chronic therapies with the, the low-grade toxicities really is the patient advocacy uh, programs because I haven't personally experienced these side effects. I can see them secondhand. But when you connect patients with their disease group, KRAS kickers, the ALK positives, the EGFR resistors, that'll instantly put them in touch with hundreds of other patients getting exactly the same treatment who may have discovered one way or another to uh, deal with these symptoms. And so 
I think by far the number one most effective thing I can do for these patients in this respect is to connect them with other patients undergoing the same thing and, and dealing with it. But the other thing I can do as a physician is advocate for them uh, in whatever uh, conflicts they may have. And uh, sometimes it's just uh, giving them, uh, writing them letters to their employer to, to help them uh, manage with the exigencies of being treated. And, and sometimes I've been to court with the patients to support them in ways that relate to their dealing with their lung cancer. So I think um, there are lots of ways I can help, but these these uh, patient groups are extremely important. They are really important. And you've talked a little bit about some of the side effects. We talked. You've talked a little bit about fatigue and diarrhea. Um, and, and the side effects aren't obviously as noticeable as chemo. So maybe if you could give us some more information about these side effects that are somewhat more subtle, but still, as you said, day-to-day -day and can take a terrific toll. Yeah. the um, Jill Feldman has a terrific slide where she's standing on this beach or whatever, and she's holding up her hands and and, and says she looks great, but then around her, are all the different side effects that you can have from these treatments. You may be wondering who Jill Feldman is. She's a member of the LCFA Speakers Bureau and a lung cancer patient who is a terrific advocate and talks a lot about this issue. As a medical oncologist, we see our patients frequently over the span of years now, which is fantastic that, that that's actually the case with metastatic lung cancer patients. But you have to give them the opportunity to um, to express how they're feeling and, and what their issues are. You know, my nurses always make a joke that um, the nurse will go in and get the patient in the room and talk to them how they're doing. And and um, and then I go in the room. The, the patient says they're feeling fine. They don't have any issues. But then I listen to the what the nurse uh, got from the patient. And there's a whole list of things that the patient is not in ways that the patient is not doing well. <clears throat> so as a physician, you have to be aware of that phenomenon and listen to your nurse and have a good nursing staff that that uh, can communicate with patients and, and uh, get the real story from them. And also look at the spouse often these people come with a spouse <clears throat> and so often I'll ask the patient, are you having pain? And he says, no. And the spouse is saying yes. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Carbone, but the bottom line here is appearances can be very misleading. And while people who are living with lung cancer should be supported in doing the normal activities of life, the patient is the best judge of these limitations, not their appearance to others. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we actually also have formal programs for our patients at my institution. We have something called the, the CARE program where uh, cancer patients, um, we refer them and they get a 360 degree evaluation for nutrition and physical therapy and uh, emotional support and and whatever they need it's about five different consults in one day 
but to take you know to take uh, care of everything that surrounds the treatment of the tumor, right? Because you know my focus as a medical oncologist is making that tumor shrink. But there's more to cancer therapy than than measuring the size of a tumor. Uh, it involves treating the whole patient and and giving them the best quality of life, and and uh, sometimes referral to uh, programs uh, that address nutritional needs and and exercise needs and functional needs. How to get up and down stairs, how to deal with these kinds of things, are beyond my immediate expertise, but uh, oncology programs should invest in, in such uh, services for their patients. Dr. Carbone, we've talked a lot today, but I'm, I'm interested, you work with so many patients. What else should these patients know about that's really important when they get this diagnosis and they're like, I don't look sick. And so it's so difficult to be able to explain to people how I'm feeling and what's going on inside. Well, the, the cancer um, treatment and dealing with cancer is incredibly complicated and it involves the whole patient and all aspects of the patient, but it also involves their family. And the um, as a cancer survivor myself, I can uh, confirm that the diagnosis of cancer is... Um, it impacts dramatically the entire family, especially children and the spouse. Um, and it's hard to underestimate how trips to the doctor and, and surgeries and procedures can be viewed by children who don't really understand what's going on. And so I think it's also important for us to be uh, sensitive to the patient's home environment in general, it, it can be financial issues that we can help the patient with that impact the family. And sometimes medical care uh, results in, in uh, loss of the family home or uh, spending the entire uh, college fund for the children. And uh, and, and children need this uh, support as well. And, and offering or having available uh, psychological counseling for children in, in the home, I think is important and making sure that patients understand that that's, that's normal and acceptable and, and not a sign of weakness, for example. Great information. And I'm sure that will also give solace to a lot of cancer patients and their families out there because they need to know that these are very typical concerns that impact just about every family when they get the cancer diagnosis. Thanks so much, Dr. Carbone. We really appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. We've heard a doctor's perspective on this. Now let's hear from someone who's living with lung cancer. Aurora Lucas lives in Chicago. She's no stranger to people being shocked that she is living a vibrant life with lung cancer. Aurora, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about a topic a lot of people may not have thought about. Sometimes when people learn that a young, vibrant person like yourself is living with lung cancer, they're really taken aback. They get caught up in the stereotype that lung cancer patients must always be this old, frail person uh, who is a chain smoker. And that's just not always the case. Yeah, you're totally right. And Jordan, thank you for having me on the podcast. 
And I think when I was being diagnosed, I would have been like, oh my God, you know, like all defensive. But now that I've had time to kind of unpack it, I say, yeah, I get it. And like, exactly. Because that is the reason why there's delayed diagnosis, especially my story. It took about three to four months because even, you know, licensed doctors wouldn't, they weren't very concerned that I could possibly have lung cancer. They were thinking it may be other things, anything but cancer. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so few people um, our age have been diagnosed with lung cancer. You can certainly understand that stereotype. That doesn't mean that it's something that shouldn't be addressed. So when people are trying to be complimentary and say something to you like, well, you don't look like you have lung cancer. How does that make you feel? Uh, I know how I'm supposed to respond, but like feeling wise, it makes somebody like me who's a lung cancer patient, sometimes it could make me feel isolated. It really depends who's saying it. But this past summer, I actually had, you know, insurance complications. So I had to go to another team that didn't really know my case. And for about an hour, the oncologist was like, you look really great. You don't look sick at all. And for an hour, I had to really keep advocating for myself and say, I have lung cancer. These are the tests that I need to get done. But, you know, when it's a regular person who's not in the medical field, I tell them like, thank you, right? Because I think it also goes into culture, right? I was thinking about this and I was raised never to really show pain. So I think I'm doing it right. Like showing that I look okay, but knowing that, you know, there's something else going on in my body. When people are shocked that you have lung cancer and say something like, you never know by looking at you, like, what is your response? You you mentioned, or rather, I should say you referenced, you know, how you needed to advocate yourself at the doctor's office. But um, what do you tell people who, you know, maybe friends or um, acquaintances who are just learning for the first time? Yeah, it takes me about a minute. Like, I breathe and I'm like okay, this could be like an educational moment because I think it goes into survivorship as well. Um, be Looking okay as a lung cancer patient and not the stereotypical one, people tend to kind of say like, you look good now, you're fine, you know. Um, but when it's someone that I'm just meeting, I try and take the opportunity to kind of educate them and say like, yeah, this is what lung cancer looks like now. Like people like me are surviving, but it's still the leading um, cause of cancer death around the world. You know, for you, Aurora, um, this is far more than an annoyance. It's a lot more than just got to take a deep breath and try to figure out if this can be a teachable moment. Um, this was an integral part of your lung cancer story. You know, this is not something to do with, you know, fitting into a real or a perceived stereotype of a cancer patient. Um, this is something that actually delayed your diagnosis. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your story and why that attributed to the delay? Yeah. Um, so my by profession, I am a teacher and teachers need to talk the whole day. And I could not even finish a whole sentence and this was the time that COVID was still around. I mean, it's still around today, but it was still rampant back in 2021. And right. actually, I was like just trying to fight through the cough. But my students were like, Miss Lucas, like you can't even finish talking or your lecture. So I went to go see a doctor. And the first thing um, after I told the doctor my concerns about coughing, he said, 
everything is okay. Go boil some water and add some honey to it. And I think I left that office like, what? Like, I just didn't feel hurt, you know? Um, and him being the doctor, I kind of believed him at first. I didn't have that much of the, my advocacy self now back then. Um, it took another two to three weeks for me to actually go to the emergency room because a new symptom had shown up and it was like a deeper chest pain and I didn't understand. And this chest pain lasted for about 48 hours. Then I checked myself in and then they were trying to do other tests like such as like tuberculosis, you know, the word cancer, like the C word just didn't come up for like the next two or three months. Wow. That's interesting because, you know, COVID was certainly a concern back then, but what really struck me with your story is, you know, you felt that pain that you're like, wait a minute, this is not normal. So, you know, eventually, you know, how did you um, break through to get the diagnosis? How did you advocate for yourself to say, listen, th this is probably um, more than just a cough? Mm -hmm. Well, I had to learn to show pain. That was one of the biggest lessons because I would go in and they would ask, oh, how how is the pain? And I would say maybe a three or four. And then I would be waiting in the emergency room. And I would tell my sister what was going on. She's like, I think you need to tell them you're really, really in pain. So I would say six or seven. And then they would have a little bit more agency. Um, but even then with that hospital, I had to go back to my primary care doctor. And my life was in her hands because I had to wait for her to give me a referral for a PET scan, which mm -hmm. took so long. So another part of my story is like having that type of insurance and having to wait for the doctor to give me that referral. What's interesting, Aurora, is you talk about, you know, the cultural aspect of um, having to keep your pain silent. And I think that that's something that a lot of lung cancer patients um, endure on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, you know, the premise of this podcast and our listeners, I'm sure, have already um, understanding here is, you know, you don't look like you have cancer. But the mm -hmm. truth is that um, a lot of the therapies that lung cancer patients are on are going to have a lot of side effects that the person you know that you see or people that you see every day um, just aren't going to see. It may be pain. It, it could be other side effects. Um, what are some of the things that you've experienced now that you're on a therapy that you may be experiencing day to day that somebody who sees you just may not see? Yeah, that one has been a roller coaster ride because in the beginning, you know, I'm given this magical pill, and you know, the side effects were pretty minimal but I had to learn how to, you know, stay out of the sun or adding like lotion to my scalp. But then I learned being with these advocacy groups that these side effects can go away, but then new ones can come in. Like for example, in the present day, um, the bottom of my feet hurt mm -hmm. and I don't wanna be seen around limping, you know? <laughs> I think it's just a part of me that I'm learning how to accept. But first thing in the morning, it hurts to walk. Um, mm -hmm things that are also affected by stress. I remember uh, because I could text my oncologist, I'm like, hey, it really hurts to walk. And he said that could be linked to lung cancer. And I think for me, I've had to really assess my stress as well, like my stress levels and see like when there are a lot of, when there's a lot of stress in my life, there's a lot more side effects as well that goes with it. 
That's really interesting feedback too. Um, and I hope that, you know, some folks who are listening can, can walk away and say, you know, thank goodness, that's not just me um, that are dealing with these issues. You mentioned stress. Uh, and I, I think something here that's just not talked about enough in, in the lung cancer community is you may be on a targeted therapy and it may be helping you now, but there's always the stress it's, you know, the scanxiety as you know, it's, it's known, um, that there could be progression around the corner. So even though you may look okay, you're still dealing with that, you know, in the background, how do you deal with that? And what advice would you have for those who are also dealing with this anxiety? Yeah, that's a really good question, Jordan. Um, it's something that I have to deal with every day. Um, now I'm 30 and I'm like, okay, anything could happen. So I think my body never fails to remind me that this thing is in my body, right? So I've learned how to make peace with it. But also the other thing is like being a part of this community, you never know if you have a close friend that you've just made that will, you know, pass. And this is an experience like a, one of my lung cancer best friends, she passed two weeks ago and we're the same age. So I think us carrying like the grief, right? Um, right with it and then this anxiety part usually I'm spoiled I recently I get like the results within a few hours but the most recent one took more than three or four days and I was just like clicking on my chart I was like where is the result you know and that fear is always there but then in the beginning when I was just dealing with it on my own and with my family I felt very isolated and these thoughts I could never make space for it because I don't want to be a morbid person you know everyone's like no you look fine but being a part of a community I could actually um, make space for this fear of like hey like what if there is progression and the people that I've met they've actually had progression and they've been able to comfort me saying like Aurora, but when that time comes or if that time comes, you'll be able to handle it differently because you have more knowledge now. Well, talk about that a little bit more Aurora and the importance for you to connect with other patients on that level. Um, you know, they could be uh, within the same um, biomarker group or just somebody else who has a lung cancer diagnosis, you know, through groups like Lung Cancer Foundation of America? Yeah. Um, LCFA being like an example, I have friends there that have also had progression. And I think for me observing, I know that they're strong, but I think I had that other layer of like, you, I don't know how they feel behind closed doors. Like they are also doing the same thing I am, like looking great outside, but I know that they have those fears. But it's so important to have that community because you could, you know who to go to. Like I love my husband and I'm able to tell him, but I know that the weight of this cancer is so heavy. And I know that other people could carry that weight um, with him like he doesn't have to be like my sole person who I tell right. about like but there's a whole entire community like hundreds of people online and it's pretty amazing so Aurora the last question for you we have uh, on the podcast today is you know when you're in the midst of a treatment plan and maybe you're not feeling the best um, you may be seeing your peers who are living with lung cancer that are doing really really well maybe they're in remission 
or maybe they're showing uh, as NED, no evidence of disease. Is that really hard to deal with? Um, talk us through kind of your mental process and how you look at those situations. Yeah, honestly, my honest question is that I'm okay with it. Um, I'm happy for them that they're doing better or that they're NED and I'm here still having to deal with it uh, because in the beginning of the journey, I really made peace with what was going on with my body. I talked to one of my friends who's, she also dealt with cancer, but she has breast cancer. And she said, Aurora, I think what you need to work on is making peace with this thing going on in your body. And at first I was like, what do you mean? Like, I'm supposed to fight this thing, right? And she's like, this is a part of your body now. So I think I have that mentality of putting my energy towards like, how can I make myself better? and just be like happy for other people who are on their own path because you just never know, right? Even that person with NED or remission, it's still unpredictable. And I think it, it further um, puts importance on just research because we know that, you know, every, um, every lung cancer, it's like a snowflake, it's unique, right? And we know that, you know, how individualized treatments have become uh, over the years, that research really, really matters to, you know, help all people who are diagnosed with lung cancer, not just ones that have approved targeted therapies um, on the market today or targeted therapies that are in clinical trials. So, um, Aurora, thank you so much for uh, sharing your your honest and, and candid feedback. Um, and we certainly hope that your story is going to help those um, who are living with lung cancer and maybe feeling some of the things that you're feeling right now and have to day to day, you know, break through uh, those stereotypes. Thank you for listening, Jordan, and all these meaningful questions. I know it's not always easy to talk about, but thank you for giving us space to talk about this. What a great conversation with Dr. David Carbone and with Aurora Lucas that gave us some great insight into what it's like to be living with lung cancer. If you're enjoying the Hope and the Answers Living with Lung Cancer podcast, consider donating to help LCFA produce this resource for patients or really anyone seeking answers, hope, and access to updated information about scientific investigation and clinical trials. Make sure to subscribe to the Hope with Answers Living with Lung Cancer podcast. You'll be notified every time a new episode is available. So visit us online at lcfamerica.org where you can find more information about the latest in lung cancer research, new treatments, and more. You can also join the conversation with LCFA on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.